Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Anne-Marie Benedicto, Vice President of the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare, about how hospitals have used high reliability practices to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, this is Jay Kumar. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Anne-Marie Benedicto, who's the Vice President of the Joint Commission Center for Transforming Healthcare. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Jay. Good morning. Um, good morning. And I was hoping you could uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what the center does, sort of, I mean, everybody kind of knows who the Joint Commission is, but you know, what, what does the Center for Transforming Healthcare do and you know, what do you do um, for them? Um, of course. Um, the Center for Transforming Healthcare is a wholly owned uh, 501c3, so nonprofit affiliate of the Joint Commission. And we were created about 11 years ago to help healthcare organizations reach zero harm through high reliability approaches to care delivery. Uh, and so we've been working with, um, we've been working across the healthcare system, so hospitals, long term care, home care, ambulatory care, nursing homes, uh, to talk about how they develop the systems and structures necessary to transform so that zero harm is a natural consequence of what they do every day. Um, and that includes um, focusing on specific harm events like, you know, how to prevent healthcare-acquired infections, how to prevent falls with injury, but also going beyond that and looking at the systems and structures in organizations and asking ourselves, you know, what should change? What um, infrastructure should be built so that um, harm, the conditions that uh, cause harm um, uh, are challenged. Um, great. And I guess sort of, you know, given this, you know, what's happened over the last few months with COVID-19, you know, what has been the role of, of the center? Like, what have you been doing uh, in your in your job uh, to sort of, obviously, there's a lot tied into, um, you know, high reliability going into, you know, how hospitals reacted to this. But, um, you know, how, how have you been uh, dealing with this? Um, well, Ajay, that's a great question. Uh, the, the center works in very differently. Uh, we have different products and services. We mm-hmm. have... Um, uh, something we call the targeted solutions tool that is a software application that helps people um, uh, navigate um, uh, harm events like you know hand hygiene um, and making that more consistent, um, preventing falls, preventing sepsis, uh, um, making sure that surgeries remain safe, and also uh, improving handoff communications because of how communication causes harm or the lack of communication causes harm. Uh, we have also uh, we also have a suite of high reliability training, so um, around how to improve your safety culture, how to um, uh, create an organizational culture that focuses on improvement, and the, the engagement around those so building high reliability infrastructure. Those have been continuing. So we have been working with our customers who have been focused on that, um, and um, coaching them through the use of these tools, uh, which one of our customers called tools to navigate um, uncertainty, um, and you, seeing them use these tools to navigate. Um, uh, COVID-19. Oh, and, and can you describe what some of these tools are? 
Um, a lot of them have to do with um, um, performance improvement. So mm-hmm. um, an improvement mindset. How do you use data to make decisions? How do you make changes? Or how do you um, navigate a rapidly changing uh, context? And do it in a way that brings people with you. Um, so that you're getting the buy-in and the ideas of um, the people who you want to make the change for or the change with. Um, for instance, uh, we had a, a longtime partner who is also uh, who also uses our tools for robust process improvement, which is uh, the use of Lean, Six Sigma, and formal change management methods. And he was given the assignment to lead the creation of a COVID unit. So this was a few months ago, mm-hmm. uh, and he just finished his green belt training. So green belt training means that he went through a very intense uh, months, months long learning these tools, improvement tools, and applying them to an organizational problem. Uh, and so he said he had used the, his tools to create a COVID unit, in particular, um, um, change management tools. So making sure that um, he was working with the people who were most affected uh, by um, by COVID in the sense that they would be staffed for that unit. Um, he had to show servant leadership. He needed to make sure that um, he got their feedback, that he could see the idea of what safe means, for instance, from his from their eyes. And so um, one of his findings, for instance, was the level of anxiety uh, was very different across different staff. Um, this was different among nurses, among environmental engineers, among techs, among cleaning staff. And so each of those of those staffs, of those groups of people who would be part of the multidisciplinary team that would staff these units, um, had to understand their role, also had to see their concern reflected in their in the response of leadership. So this is how we're stocking the units, these are the protocols we're building so that you are comfortable and you are safe. Um, and I guess, do you have a, a sense of how many hospitals are using, you know, these kinds of best practices, uh, you know, as opposed to ones who aren't? Oh, yeah, I, I would say more and more um, um, through through the years when, when we first started this work um, 11 years ago, there uh, there was hardly any. Um, mm-hmm. But now um, more and more hospitals use lean. Um, a lot of hospitals also use Six Sigma, although not as much as, as, as organizations who, who use Lean, and not very many, and I know this is, these aren't numbers, mm-hmm. um, not very many formal change management, um, which is probably the most critical because you don't make any improvements without making a change. Mm-hmm. I guess sort of, you know, from your vantage point, how prepared were hospitals for COVID-19? Obviously, it was, you know, it hit the country by surprise because it was something we hadn't dealt with before. But, um, you know, how, you know, sort of what kind of a a preparedness level were we at um, in terms of hospitals? Um, I would say that um, hospitals prepare for emergencies. They have emergency plans. Uh, I've worked in hospitals, so I've been part of those drills to make sure that the emergency plans work, that you have an opportunity to kick the tires before the emergency happens. now, having said that, uh, the pandemic has surprised our healthcare system in many ways. Well, not just our healthcare system, right? Many of yeah. us. Yeah. All of us. Um, uh, with healthcare, I think 
particularly in the first few months, the uncertainty regarding testing, which really affected our understanding of the disease, especially, um, you know, how infectious it was and who has it, the profile of patients, the profile of symptoms. Um, and the fact that our hospitals had to learn to treat COVID patients because there wasn't an established treatment protocol. And there's still no vaccine. And there's some question about whether a vaccine might even be the answer, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think the intensity of the disease and what treatments required uh, brought about shortages of supplies like PPEs and equipment like ventilators. Um, and then there's the timeline of the pandemic. Um, so unlike a hurricane like Katrina or Sandy or a terrorist attack like 9-11, which might be seen as major disastrous, dangerous standalone events with an aftermath, we're now entering the third month of a national disaster. Mm. So this relatively long time horizon exacerbates issues like supplies and the financial impact. Um, also the impact on healthcare workers who have been heroic. Um, who have innovated, who have worked as teams, even with new members coming in, you know, the volunteers flying in across across the country to help organizations. They have been caring, they have shown camaraderie and supported each other. But we've also seen anger, frustration, grief, burnout, um, and trauma. Um, I had read that um, two years after the uh, SARS in Toronto, Mm -hmm. People who dealt with the outbreak were still less productive and more likely to be experiencing burnout and post-traumatic stress. So we can we can anticipate that that will happen if it's not happening already. Um, and then there's this transition to living with COVID. That um, in the first few days of um, the stay-at-home order, when I was talking to customers, the focus was really on you know get through the crisis, and then on the other side we will do new things. Actually, that has really changed. Now it's, we will have to do both. We will have to serve in a sense to patient populations, the ones who are COVID positive and who are in the hospital because we are treating them um, uh, and they have COVID, and the ones who need to come in because they have stuff that isn't COVID related and they are COVID negative, and the two populations will have to coexist safely. And I, I imagine in some areas of the country that's already happening where, you know, um, either the, you know, the COVID, uh, number of COVID patients has kind of dwindled uh, or you know, they weren't hit that hard. And you've still got all these other patients with their normal issues that take up all of your time that need to be dealt with. Um, you know, how, that must be a difficult balancing act for hospitals. Yeah, so I think there's a fear that um, COVID will be the next healthcare acquired infection. And that's, you know, that's, you can understand the fear around that. Mm. Um, I think the third factor, too, is that it's not been a, um, a uniform experience across the country. You live in New York. Uh, well, I live in New York. You live in Boston. Mm. So um, um, we can really see that the experience of, of hospitals have been varied. Um, so hospitals located in areas with high numbers of infections like New York, Boston, New Jersey, California, these hospitals have had a very different experience than others who have had to take care of fewer patients or who are still waiting for their peak and right. have had the chance and also learn from the experience of others. Um, you touched on this earlier uh, in terms of uh, change management and, and sort of tools that can be used, but you know, how can uh, high, rel high reliability best practices 
you know, help organizations prepare for similar situations, whether it's the next, you know, I know they're talking about a second wave of COVID or something else different altogether. You know, what are some some ways that, you know, uh, high reliability can sort of help your organization, you know, really get ready for something like this? Um, I, I think one of the one of the factors that really helps during a crisis is how um, how leaders can activate and get information throughout an organization quickly, um, and that's because what they see as leaders will be very different uh, than the people at the front line who are seeing the fire or, in this case, um, treating patients on the ground. So. Um, um, making sure that those lines of communication are open, so there's there's so leaders can hear what's going on and can do something about it. Um, so walking around um, the rounding that leaders do is often uh, focused on the patient experience. There's really maybe a, a switch to focusing on what the staff need and what to, and to take away barriers, so that it's it's call and response. It's not just communication to, to something, but a conversation between the people who can make the decisions or the people who can take away hurdles um, and the people and, and the, the, the frontline workers who are experiencing the problems and who are trying to solve them. So that's the first thing, um, strong communication and also deference to the expertise of the frontline staff. Um, building skills that help navigate uncertainty so that it's not just a small group of people who can do data-driven problem solving, that that's more pervasive in an organization. And so there's a focus on improvement and focus on knowing what questions to ask and how to get buy-in, how to get information, even at a crisis. In fact, that's probably even more critical in a crisis situation. Um, and then looking at the emergency plans, you know, and thinking to yourself, you know, how can this fail? That kind of um, looking at failure modes and always thinking, okay, best way plan, how can we break this so that they become unbreakable over time? Um, and then actively working on building trust. And this is, uh, this is, I think, a, a very clear leadership function anyway, but is even more acute during a crisis because trust enables everything else. It enables communication. It enables um, creativity and innovation um, that frontline workers or others know that their ideas are valued and that they're ex they are expected to help solve problems. And then that these ideas are enacted and shared. Um, so that's, that's a, a handful. Yeah. Um, you mentioned emergency plans. Obviously, hospitals have been emergency planning for you know forever. Um, how yeah. do how does emergency planning need to change? You know, sort of you know, seeing how this was such a a different kind of a crisis than um, you know hospitals have dealt with before. You know, how how do you think emergency planning will change going forward? I I think um, one of my biggest ahas from this. Um, from talking to people and also from seeing it unfold is how big this got and about how one organization really couldn't do it all. Uh, for instance, um, because it's financially sound and also because many uh, health hospitals are cash strapped, this whole idea of just-in-time ordering of supplies is very prevalent and very smart unless until you have a shortage, mm. um, until you need to stockpile. 
and and so um, knowing when to flex between those two systems, you know, when do I need a stockpile? Where, where can I act as a stockpile? Um, is is one way that an emergency plan could be flexed, um, and also this need to um, look not just beyond a healthcare organization and the system it's in, but also its linkage to um, um, police and fire, uh, for instance, or even other systems in in the state or in the region that they're in. How do they connect, and when do they work together? Um. And I know that, you know, one part of it is sort of doing that uh, community drill, you know, uh, whether it's a tabletop drill or a different kind of exercise where you get all the different um, you know, stakeholders, you know, whether it's police, fire, whoever, other hospitals, you know, around the table to kind of discuss what would happen in a in an emergency situation. Uh, you know, I would think that this would place even more emphasis on that uh, going forward. Yes, definitely. Um, and also being open to um, learning from um, other organizations or other states or even other countries, you know, what worked and what didn't work and why. Um, that's also staffing. So not just looking at the, um, looking at staffing as a critical infrastructure. Um, um, one of the muscles that I saw um, uh, grow during the past few months is the openness of, of hospitals to having volunteers come in. And not just the volunteers that help with the day-to-day -day work, you know, the volunteers who staff the gift shop, et cetera, but also uh, volunteers who come, who, who bring in clinical services and that you then have to integrate and orient into your facility very quickly. Um, did you, you know, sort of, we, we've, you know, you mentioned sort of, uh, you know, different approaches in different areas. Um, have you noticed any uh, anything that really impressed you from whether it's a certain uh, area of the country or even other countries and how they've dealt with uh, COVID and kind of because certainly you know there have been very different approaches <laughs> around the world yeah. and some have worked a lot better than others. Um, well, the, the country by country response I think has been very interesting to watch. Um, the, um, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm very close to the stories that, um, have come out of New York and particularly how, um, the state had to pull together to pull resources and to make sure that, um, um, a hospital like Elmhurst in Queens, for instance, has relief from other parts of the system and other parts of the of New York City when they were approaching um, uh, capacity. So, so that that was one part that I, I thought was really went really well. I, I thought how um, and a lot of this is culturally based, right? You can't always just impose someone else's solution because it might not work. I, I thought how South Korea handled contact tracing uh, through technology by apps on the phone was so, was so eye-opening because I could not see it happening here. Right. But as, but as I continue through the epidemic, I, I think to myself, why not? I think we all have phones. And so, so the possibilities that other people have used that that become possibilities here um, have been interesting. I've also liked how California has um, 
the 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 governor's office and the the state health department have really been catalysts of pulling resources together and making sure that um, there was a way, for instance, for hospitals to clean N95 masks, and that was coordinated by the state, which I loved. Did it surprise you that we had such a shortage of N95s and and in other you know crucial uh, tools and, and equipment that we needed to to fight this? Um, yes, um, I I was surprised about I was surprised about how uh, something so ubiquitous as a mask would um, have such an impact um, and not be there. The lack of it, I, I was probably more surprised by by um, the difficulties with testing. Mm-hmm. That, that's really the supplies. Not so much because I've been um, N95. I was surprised. But there are always shortages in hospitals, at least from my experience, having um, been in hospitals. And so, uh, any surge would exacerbate that um, that looking for resources. And anything that lasts more than a week is going to be hard for organizations. Yeah, but the, but the testing was the big thing. That that was really yeah, really hurt. Um, and so I guess you know we're now, you know, I'm speaking to you. It's you know just after Memorial Day, and you know obviously some states are starting to open things up again. Um, you know, and obviously it's it's a different approach, like you said, you know, state to state. Uh, some are kind of trying to keep it things, you know, you know, a tight lid on things. I know they are, um, you know, here in Massachusetts, but you know, what do you think about sort of the approach, uh, you know, to kind of reopen it? Are, are you worried that there's going to be, you know, kind of another rise in cases again? Um, yes, I, I think that's one of the big unknowns. You know, we are dealing with so many factors. Um, so, and of course, hospitals across the country have different experiences with COVID. So the path to opening up or or opening up either business by business or service by service uh, will be different based on geography and also what they're currently handling. Um, A good place to start is looking at their local and federal guidelines and saying, you know, is this enough? Um, But that's, that's, you know, the the first place to look. I, I I do believe it's it's going to be um it's not just the regulation, it's also convincing the public that you're open for business, right? And so um how are you going to live with COVID? No uh, no knowing that um uh, the people coming into your facility will also be wondering, you know, how many of your staff have tested positive? Are you still seeing COVID positive patients? Um and reassuring them that even if those are not true, that even if we still have COVID positive patients, that we are going to treat you and we are going to treat you in a safe manner. Um, so that's going to require a different level of organizing. So organizing space or organizing entry and exit, social distancing, requirements for masks, new visitor policies, testing patients as they enter the facility, and all that has, has to be um, communicated in a way that makes sense to the public as well. And also that you have very clear metrics for success, that um, um, that you 
that organizations communicate that to their public. We know we are successful because you know we have social distancing and because none of our none of our staff have tested positive in fourteen days. Whatever it is, it has to be public as well and accessible. Yeah, I guess it's getting that message out there. I mean, you know, I've certainly you know read about um, you know there's there's a fear you know of going to the hospital, you know, just, you know, if you have a, a, you know, a different ailment that needs to be treated, you know, I think people are afraid that if they go to the hospital, they might get catch COVID. Um, you know, so I, I mean, yeah. is messaging, uh, you know, as important as, you know, sort of obviously all the other steps you have to take to, you know, kind of reassure the public? Well, the other steps are probably necessary before you can reassure the public, right? Mm -hmm. If, 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 if you say your your uh, organization is safe, and then people come come in and they see a crowd of people with no masks and not socially distant, then they will probably not come back. Um, I, I also think the balance between coming into the facility and also um, um, uh, doing telehealth is also going to be important. So being clear when telehealth is most appropriate and when it isn't um, um, is something to discuss and communicate with the public about. And I know actually from personal experience, so I had to take my mother to the hospital just to get a test done um, last week, and uh, I wasn't allowed to go in. Like she, they, you know, they kind of took her, escorted her to where she needed to go, but I had to wait outside because they weren't allowing any visitors in. Um, do you see that uh, as something that should continue, or will will that kind of ease up as we we move along? I mean, obviously, you want to keep us, you know. Uh, as few people who don't need to be in the hospital out of there, uh, you know, just to keep those germs out. But. <laughs> um, I, I, think that, I think that will continue. Um, yeah. I have been seeing some uh, services where you're allowed one visitor. Uh, so that's part of the easing up of um, services, uh, but restricting a more restrictive visitor visitors policy, I, I think will be part of the, the near future at least. Um, which also begs um, for the creation of new kinds of ways to connect with connect families. Um, for instance, um, um, we have seen an expanded role for patient experience staff who use um, iPads or laptops to make sure patients and their families connect. And I do think that, you know, the, the difficulty there also lies in, you know, when you've got a patient who's uh, older, who maybe doesn't understand everything they're being told, or somebody who doesn't speak the language, uh, who usually relies on a family member to explain things to them, you know, that that can make things difficult, uh, obviously, with the communication between the clinician and the patient. Yes, that definitely. And and um and, and we have seen so um the patient experience people, customer service people really being given new roles around that. Um they use the iPads. Um we've heard one organization who created patient experience ambassadors and really has delivered technology um um consistently so that they were that they were the access point of communication between patients and families and this was in the COVID unit. And um they said they did everything. They 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 did they facilitated end of life conversations and decisions like that, but they also celebrated birthdays. Um, they did uh, routine hellos every day with with patients and their families. So it, it was a role that really expanded because of need and because of the 
the the switching of the of the visitor policy. So it's one winded down, the other one had to ramp up. Um, and you mentioned a little earlier about you know the impact that this has been uh, having on staff, um, and you know the possibility that you know the burnout uh, experience could last you know for longer than you know just a couple of months. How you know how can hospitals you know support their staff? Uh, you know sort of obviously we're, some places are still in the middle of this, but some are kind of coming on the on the other end of it. How can we help uh, you know those clinicians kind of deal with this with with the stress of all this? Um, I this is actually one of the conversations that have I, from my perspective changed over time. Um, uh, when the pandemic first started, there was really an emphasis of getting through this. Right? Let's just get through this. Um, but now that getting through this takes longer, has taken longer than any of us predicted. Um, uh, a lot of leaders are saying, let's make changes now. Let's make sure services are here. Um, and then doing what they can to demystify um, those services to staff or, or remove whatever um, stigma there is around people who are tough healthcare but need help themselves. Um, so um, hotlines have been created and also um, mental health services are available and it's really leaders um, and also peers uh, responsibility to say, we're doing this for you, um, take care of yourselves. Um, this is something that's just worked elsewhere um, and as others have found to be beneficial part of you taking care of yourself means you you, uh, you use these services. So not waiting until you see signs that there is trouble or people are feeling badly. Chances are they already are. So do it now. And for the for the places where um they they're still preparing for their peak or they, they have had fewer patients to treat if at all, then even better because then um um there's nothing acute driving the need to provide those services. It can just be, you know, the services are here now. Um, a lot of healthcare workers are working in hospitals that have not seen a surge, for instance, or are still manageable in terms of the number of patients who are COVID positive that they need to treat, still have other stresses. Um, uh, no one has escaped financial uncertainty with, um, a lot of the unemployment or furloughs happening. So e even without um, e even without the surge in a hospital or the death through COVID, um, a lot of people are already under stress. Yeah, and, and definitely like there have already been sort of these kinds of efforts being made, you know, even before uh, any of this happened. Um, you know, I definitely, I know we've covered uh, done a lot of coverage on, you know, second victim syndrome and, and then things like that, where, you know, uh, caregiver support is just like, you know, it's an important thing, you know, during normal, so-called normal times, um, let alone during a pandemic. So, I mean, I, I know that there's been steps already taken to address that. Uh, I, I imagine they'll just be kind of putting a little more emphasis on it now. Yeah, so there's, I, I think there are also opportunities. Like I, I was talking to a, a colleague who, um, who remarked on the what he called very impressive teamwork that is built among his staff uh, after years of you know interdisciplinary squabbling, <laughs> but um, and so and and but he knows it's not going to last. 
right? And so, but he did see that and say, I am going to use this, the shared experience, as the foundation to build trust among the teams. That you see change, but if you like it, nurture it. Um, because we can't expect it to just uh, take root on its own. It has to be helped. Um, I, one of the things you said, Jay, um, reminded me also that um, the crisis of COVID-19 is already on top of a lot of, um, I guess, resource issues and also um, um, capacity issues that healthcare already had. Mm -hmm. um, um, Last year, there was a lot of conversation around burnout and physician suicides. Right. And uh, so that, that's already an indication of uh, healthcare workers that were under stress. And, and so, so the pandemic happened on top of that. Right. Um, and then the financial uncertainties of hospitals, which are exacerbated now, um, was already happening before the pandemic. Um, and I think ironically, a lot of these hospitals who are suffering are also the hospitals who treat the most vulnerable patients, mm -hmm. who are also most adversely affected, disproportionately so by um, COVID-19. So African-American communities, uh, Latino communities, and um, immigrant communities. Absolutely. Well, Anne-Marie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed it myself. Thank you so much All for right. the opportunity. Thank you. And that wraps up episode four of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. Subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.